Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute Family Counseling and Recovery Center in Long Beach, California. If you or anyone you know is struggling with any of life's challenges, please reach out to us. You can find more information about us at theaddictedmind.com forward slash help. So before we start this episode, I have a favor to ask. I want to hear from you and I want to hear your story. So go to theaddictedmind.com and click on the tab that says share your story. You'll have 90 seconds to offer your message of hope to others out there who are still struggling. And my hope is to have your voice as part of the Addicted Mind podcast so that your voice can help others out there who are still struggling. If that feels like a fit for you and that's something you want to do, I encourage you to go check it out and share your story. Also, if you're enjoying The Addicted Mind, please rate and review us in iTunes or share the podcast with a friend. And don't forget about our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in The Addicted Mind Podcast. Click join, answer a few questions, and we can continue the conversation there as well. All right, we are on to episode 78, and our guest today is Mark Sheeran and Michelle Dunbar of the Baldwin Research Group, and they are going to talk about their non-12-step, non-disease model of addiction treatment called the Freedom Model, and I really enjoyed our conversation. I love hearing from other people about their different thoughts about addiction and addiction treatment. Now, in doing this episode, there is definitely some things that I wholeheartedly agree with, both Mark and Michelle, and there are other parts of it too that I really have to do some thinking about and contemplating on. But I love having thought-provoking interviews and really hearing different perspectives about addiction. So I really enjoyed doing this episode and really enjoyed our conversation. And I think you guys will enjoy it as well. So with that said, let's go ahead and start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Mark Sheeran and Michelle Dunbar. 
and we're going to talk about the Freedom Model. So you guys want to introduce yourself? Sure. I'm Mark Sheeran, and I'm the chairman of Baldwin Research and also one of the co-authors of the Freedom Model. I also co-founded the St. Jude Retreat, which is where we teach the Freedom Model. And Michelle? And I'm Michelle Dunbar, and I'm one of the co-authors of the Freedom Model. I'm also the executive director of Baldwin Research. I'm the director of our retreat, and I teach the program as well. Yes. Awesome. Great. So tell me a little bit about you guys and how you came to addiction work and doing this work. Okay. Well, uh, we'll start with me. I'm yes. 50 years old and uh, well, 49, close enough. Um, <laughs> getting there. Yeah. <laughs> and 30 years ago when I was 19, I got into a pretty serious drunk driving accident and I made the determination that I needed to change my life, which I did do. And then I was mandated into treatment. And I disagreed with what they were teaching me vehemently. I said, I'm not forever going to be an alcoholic. I don't drink anymore. And I had such a bad experience in treatment that I said, there's got to be a better way. And after I got out of treatment 18 months later, I said, uh, I'm going to figure out a better way for people. And within a year, I had coined the phrase non-12 step. So that's where that whole idea culturally came from, was this, at that point, 19 turning 20-year-old kids saying, there has to be a better way. Well, there wasn't a better way. Back in 1989, there was no other form of, there was no alternative to the 12 steps or rehab or treatment. So I went through a 12-year period of research. In that time, I met Michelle as well, and we did the research together over a period of 12 years along with some other people, Jerry Brown, who was my research mentor. And we developed the skeleton of what is today the Freedom Model. Then the subsequent 20 years, we perfected that into the Freedom Model and published all the data that we collected over the last 30 years, helping thousands of people. Thank you for sharing all of that. Michelle, tell me a little bit about you. Well, actually, I, right around the same time period, I'm a little older, I'm 51, and I'm actually 51 and a half now because it's November, and my, Mark met my father in AA in 1988, wasn't it? 89. 89. And I was still very much drinking and drugging and partying pretty hard, but I did go to my father for help. I was 22. And, but I quit drinking for a few days. I actually experienced withdrawal symptoms. I was drinking that heavily uh, for about the last six months of my drinking. And my dad was, had been sober for about 10 years and he was kind he was in AA, but he was already kind of a heretic in AA because he wouldn't tell people he was an alcoholic. And it was a weird, like from a young age, I was told I was going to be an alcoholic if I drank. And then all of a sudden he did a 180 on me and he was saying how there's no such thing as an alcoholic. And, And my father was nuts, you know? So, but I was intrigued and he had a bunch of young guys that he was working with and I didn't realize he was doing research. So I unknowingly became one of the only female research subjects in his research project. And what he told me was that you don't have a disease, you're not powerless, you weren't born into this, this is a temporary problem and you can be okay. I mean, I had never heard that before. I had worked on a school for psychology and I had learned everything you could ever learn about addiction. I was trying to fix myself. And, but I watched my grandmother die of cancer so I knew the difference. You know, I knew that there was a behavioral issue there. There wasn't, you know, a pathological issue. And so that, you know, I 
over the last, I kind of moved on with my life. I did AA for a while, but we were always heretics. You know, we were always telling people they could be okay. And we really did try to change it from within. I think me more than they did. Um, so I, you know, went to seven years of meetings. I sponsored hundreds of women and the research, we were really trying to figure out what parts of the program worked. Um, and we wanted it to work. We wanted to figure that out. And, you know, after, you know, 20 years or so, actually it wasn't that long, it was 12 to 15 years, we, we ended up throwing everything out. Um, and that was really when we began to develop a program that worked. Um, and we were just working with people at the retreat one-on-one um, all that time. And that's how the Freedom Model developed. Oh, awesome. So you had the experience with 12-step and it really didn't fit for you guys. It didn't feel right. You didn't, like, this isn't working and kind of said, wait a minute, but seven years is a long time. So it sounds like you really dug in and said, wait a minute, there's something not right about this, or there's something more out there, or, or this isn't working. Well, I think that we both came from heavy, heavy, heavy AA backgrounds. Both of our families were steeped in, in treatment and AA. And so that's where the research really began was as children was as kids and then and that when i say that first 12 years out of the 30 that we've been studying this was spent in aa trying desperately to make it work and become more effective but we were heretics at the same time so there's this real horrendous dichotomy because where AA says you basically never get over the problem, we were saying, of course you do. Of yeah, course we you knew do. we had. And so we were, I went to over 3,000 AA meetings and basically as a member in the beginning, then as a skeptical member, then as a researcher, and then as a researcher that was fairly anti-AA, got to the point where I said, you know, none of what they're saying is true when I learned the history, when I really understood the facts. And, it, you know, I loved AA. I mean, we all started there. But the facts are the facts are the facts. And as a researcher, when you look at the facts, you find out that the disease is bunk. It simply is not true. It's factually incorrect. It's misinformed. And that people do, in fact, move on. Over 90% of drug addicts and or alcoholics or people with a heavy substance use problem move past it as you factor in age. So as we get older, we get over the problem, whether you treat it or not. You know, they ignore this huge elephant in the room that people get over the problem. So treatment isn't necessary, contrary to popular belief. And so that's a huge part of the freedom model that you have to undo the mythology so that you can become free and move on. Yes. You don't have to be tied into recovery. Right. So that's very different from the 12-step model where they're saying, look, you're an addict for life. This is what you have to do. This is what you have to experience. And that's never going to change. Correct. And for young people, and a lot of the research for us stemmed around young people. And, you know, so as a 22-year-old and a, and a 19-year-old, the idea that I was going to have to struggle forever. And I watched my grandfather do it. My grandfather died in withdrawal from alcohol. I mean, we have a long line of Irish drunks in my family. And, you know, and I watched him struggle, even though he put together years of sobriety. And I thought, I, that can't be me. There's no way I'm going to live, you know, until I'm 60 years old doing this. Right. What would you say to the people out there who say, you know what, 12-step really helped me. I really got a lot of support and I really value 12-step. Well, I think that it becomes a valuable paradigm for certain people. Certain yes. people need it as a social club. They need it as a place to go where they feel special, where they feel, if you believe you're an alcoholic, 
alcoholic or an addict, it fits, right? It fits. There's a whole structure around being a special alcoholic. And I don't say that in a mean way. I no. look at, I went to 3000 AA. Right. We were I, members. I was a deeply entrenched member. So I understand that side of the fence completely. I enjoyed the distraction that AA provided to life. I enjoyed the fact that I could go and speak with like-minded people, but eventually it wore itself out for me. So, and there, it does for most people. That's exactly Because the true. membership of AA has stayed pretty it hasn't grown in a long, long time. It's stayed pretty stagnant, which means there, are, and when you think of how many people are mandated into it, like through the court systems and from treatment programs, then you know that a whole lot of people don't stick it out um, for it to stay pretty stagnant. It's actually shrinking a little bit. Yeah, it's been on a downward mm -hmm. cycle now for 15 years. Yeah. And, you know, when I look at like, you know, knowing the history of 12 step where it came out of a religious paradigm. And I think the saddest part is that people who were struggling at the time in the 30s when 12-step was formed, the medical community shunned them as moral deviants. And so these people who wanted help created their own system to do it. Unfortunately, it was untied to medical research. And there was a lot of stuff in it that came out of the religious community of how to change and how to make change. And I think that stayed with it. But I do think it is changing. You know, I mean, I think addiction is now brought back into the medical field, looking at it through the lens of research and trying to understand my belief is, is how as human beings, do we change our behavior? How does behavior manifest itself? What tools do we need to use to be able to, to live our best life to do that? So, I mean, to me, I understand how 12 step developed. It, it makes sense. There was nowhere else for anybody to go, you know, but I also think that the addiction treatment community has to be open to new ideas and changes and look like what you're doing, looking at the research and just looking at it, even if it's uncomfortable to look at, we have to look at that and make the changes we need so that people can get the help that helps them function to live their best life, right? That's exactly correct. You know, the whole, the really what we put together in the freedom model is we took every single myth that exists in the recovery culture in our society today. And there's a ton. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there is. And in our case, there's 23 chapters, which is basically 23 of the grand myths that people are told. And now they're told from grade school on these yeah. myths that they're susceptible to addiction. None of these things are written in stone or are true. So we go through each myth and we debunk it so that the person can then make a choice as to what are the benefits of my use. Why do I feel there is utility in me using? Right. And because people use because they like it. There's something about it. They feel like it's doing something for them that they can't get someplace else like they believe that they're getting certain benefits and that they're, they can be happier doing it than they can be not doing it. And so happiness is very relative there. Right. And so we go through and if you feel enslaved by a drug or if you feel like addiction happens to you, right, that it's some sort of affliction that comes from the outside in, well, then you're always at the mercy of a treatment for it, which is also on the outside coming in, mm -hmm. much like a pathogen comes in, the disease ideal, and then you have an antibiotic that comes in and challenges that. But the freedom model isn't that. It says, why internally do you make a decision and why are you motivated to use? 
based on your behavior, based on your belief system, based on maybe a lot of myths that you're living your life by. And then if we get rid of those myths and then we figure out why you actually like it on the front end, a lot of times it ends up bad, you know, but why do you like this process of getting high and drunk? And then would you be happier doing it less or abstaining? But that last part is very difficult if they're fettered by all of these myths that say it's happening to them and they feel a victim of it or enslaved by it or compelled by it. So we have to get rid of the compulsion idea, the enslaved idea, the idea that drugs have powers, elusive magic powers to take away stress, anxiety, all these cultural ideas that are in fact not true. And so we have to undo that and then we can ask the fundamental question, would you be happier abstaining or moderating your use? And then people get it and they become free. Right. Help me understand a little bit though. One of the questions I have is, as you were talking is that we know that when you do a substance or a certain behavior, that it does change our neurochemistry. That's a reality. We know that drugs do that. And then so they change how we feel. So they physically change our body. Is that... You're talking about the pharmacological effects right. of, of substances. And there are certain substances that create a dependence wherein you get with you have withdrawal if you stop. That's very much a medical issue, but it doesn't force people to keep using or nobody or whenever anybody got dependent, they wouldn't be able to stop. And the truth is nearly everybody does. I want to jump on that because think about this. Brain changes be damned, 90% of drinkers quit, whether they're treated or not. Okay, 98% of crystal meth addicts stop whether their brain changes or not. 99% of cocaine users, 98% of heroin users quit whether treated or not, even though their brains change. So brain changes and chemical changes within the physical structure of the brain is normal. This is the problem with coming from a medical direction and saying it compels use. And that's the point Michelle just made. Just because your brain changes doesn't mean that you're compelled to use. Here, treatment says your brain changes and because the brain changes, you can't stop. Yet they say you have to hit a bottom so you have to stop when your brain has changed the most. So which is it? Right. Well, it's interesting because I was doing another podcast episode and we were talking about the mythology of the rock bottom, you know, that many people and what this person does is, you know, he works with a lot of people who are, if you want to call it, I don't know if this is a language you would use, but, you know, in the beginning stages of this process of struggling with a substance or whatever, where it's not, you know, they haven't had any major consequences, but they're realizing like, oh, maybe uh, this isn't the best thing for me. And that, you know, he's saying, you know, get help then if people need help, you know, get help then. I mean, you don't have to go and destroy yourself you know, and go into this myth of this horrible rock bottom to get better. I mean, I would agree with that. Yeah. What the only point people have to come to is a point where they start to think, boy, this isn't really serving me well anymore. I think I want to make a change. Yeah. I mean, that, that for most people, that's where they get to and that's how they change. It really, the rock bottom, the danger of it is wholly subjective. So yeah. how far down do I go? And I would say the only definitive rock bottom is death. That's yeah, the definitive that's one. That's the black and white answer. So do we wait until they overdose eight times or nine? Yeah. So here's the reality of what Michelle just said, and that is most people quit long before then 
if they're not exposed to the idea that you need to hit a rock bottom, right. they don't go down that path. Right. Statistically, they simply don't. So we're teaching the wrong things to people. And people can get over the problem and do. But it's this tiny percentage of people that go to treatment, get caught in the recovery and treatment trap, which is a tiny percentage of those that use that are the most studied. So what happens is this massive group of people, and I mean massive percentage wise, that actually gets over the problem without treatment is ignored. So we didn't ignore that. As researchers, we said, holy cow, what is this other 98% of drinkers and drinkers? How did they do it? Yeah. What are they doing? They once qualified as addicted and now they're not. And half of people who once qualified as alcoholics are now moderate drinkers. How did they do that? Right. And they didn't do it through some program. They didn't learn it some book. They simply moved on. It is more natural to move on from an addiction than it is to keep one. It is much more natural for a human being to change than it is to remain static in a behavior. So this idea of teaching people that they are doomed to go down a single path that is chronic, it's just flat out bullshit. I mean, it's just not true until we teach it. Then it becomes true, right. it becomes their reality, right. and we have then made them a ward of the treatment complex. And that's the problem in America today. Right. And so what I hear you saying is like, in a way, moving that locus of control back to the self. Yeah. Oh, yes. That's the only That's place the it key. exists. That's the key. And also, and I think it's important because we you touched on something a while back about the moralistic side of it. A lot of people mistake the freedom model for us saying, well, you just need to stop. It's a bad thing to do and you just need to stop. And that's not it at all. At all. We actually don't even approach it. Like we talk in the book about substance use. People have wanted to alter their their minds since the beginning of time. So there's, you know, we don't have a judgment on if somebody, if you prefer heavy intoxication and alcohol with alcohol or whatever drug, that's okay. We want to approach it from wherever somebody is. Um, that's part of, you know, the whole idea that calling it a disease reduces stigma is absolute bunk. It doesn't, it, the stigma exists because there's a stigma on heavy substance use itself. Um, so you can't, by calling it a disease that you increase stigma. Um, instead, we want to get to a position where we say to somebody, whatever you like is what you like. Let's get you to the point where you know that you like it or else you wouldn't keep doing it because nobody does anything they don't want to do. And then once we figure out what you like about it, then we can work towards seeing if you can be happier doing less or none at all. Right. So they make that decision themselves based on the awareness and being able to talk about it, getting out of this disease mythology that you're saying. And the moralistic, you know, puritanical views of it as well. We want to get away from that too, because that's what keeps people from really getting to the heart of why they're struggling. Because shame sits in in the way. Yeah. Yeah. And I would definitely agree with that. I mean, shame is a huge, you know, if someone can't talk to other people, I mean, if you can't talk to somebody else and get reflected back your reality, it can be hard to be able to see it, right? And if you have shame, you can do that, right? So I totally get that. Yeah. You know, we need to be able to talk with others and help them help us see uh, what we can't always see ourselves, right? And I definitely agree with that. One question I'm wondering, though, as you're talking, I mean, some of it I see and I agree with and some I'm wrestling with. I mean, I look out at the opioid epidemic, right? 
And to me, we have this huge increase in opiate use, right? Which tells to me, and I'm not quoting research or anything, but I'm just wondering like, well, that's a chemical substance that's impacting people's brains. You know, I've worked with clients who had no history of addiction and they get a knee injury and they get on these very strong, powerful opiates and it is really hard for them to stop, right? You know, and so I'm wondering like, how does that fit into that kind of scenario? Help me understand that scenario a little bit more from your perspective. All right. Well, first of all, I want to address, typically Stephen answers the opiate question. Stephen's our resident opiate expert, but I've done it enough. The real data is that there are less people on opiates today than there were 10 years ago. They The prescribing level has gone down, but the vast majority of people that are dying that are dying from overdose are recreational opiate users and they were recreational opiate users from the beginning. There's a narrative out there now that even when we, I've been here since 92. So we went from having, we had always have had opiate users, we always had heroin users come in and right up until about 2012, every single opiate user that came in did not follow the narrative of, I had back surgery and now I'm addicted. But since 2012, every single opiate user that's come through here, and we've had quite a few, use that narrative because it's the accepted narrative because it's not okay to say, I was given some pills at a party and I really liked it and I kept doing it and now I boot heroin because it's cheaper. I could see that. I could definitely see how that would be a more acceptable narrative to say. Exactly. (laughs) The people that are dying are dying for for two reasons. And most of them have been through at least one treatment program. And they are dying because of illegal, because of the black market. So if we wanna reduce opiate deaths, we have to legalize drugs and we have to start regulating them. Okay, that's number one, because other countries they've done it, it's worked, okay? Number two, when people go to treatment, they're prescribed multiple psychotropic drugs. So the other reason that people are dying is because they have multiple substances in their system. So they get prescribed benzos, antidepressants, antipsychotics. Then they go out and they decide, or, and Suboxone or methadone. Then they go out and they decide, I don't feel good enough. I want to go back to using heroin. And guess what? You know, you yeah, have tolerance is switched and they die. Yeah. And so, so you have these two things working against each other, but all these opioid deaths have been that they've gone up exponentially in the last 10 years since fentanyl came on the scene. So fentanyl is the main problem, which is because of black market drugs. And it's also been since Suboxone has been prescribed very, very heavily. Now I'm not you know, down on Suboxone. I just don't think every single person needs to be on it forever and ever and ever. And so you do see a lot of these people that are dying have been on and off the Suboxone train, you know, so, and they're getting the wrong information. They feel like they're compelled to use. I love being able to hear other people's options and viewpoints on all of this stuff because we need all the information we can. People are out there suffering and- Absolutely. And we got to find what's going to work and we need all the different voices in this debate, in my opinion. But okay, so tell me a little bit about, so when you're working with someone, tell me a little bit about how this freedom model works and what do you do and how do you do that? 
Okay. So a person would come to our retreat. Well, we have a few different ways. Some people just get the book and move on. They read the material and they move on. Some people have what's called private instruction where they do exactly what we're doing right now, but one-on-one where they're at home. We send them the materials and we have classes one-on-one. Just like this. Just like this. And obviously that's a cheaper option. And then other people come to our residential retreat. So let's say that somebody shows up the door They come through our retreat. I would have a class with them one-on-one. Michelle would have a class with them one-on-one or Steve Slate would. And they would each weekday, they have two classes, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. We're going through the Freedom Model curriculum, that actual 450-page book, chapter by chapter. Depending on the conversation, we'll pick a chapter that addresses where they are at that single day or that class period, we have sort of an introductory period at the beginning of class. They tell me what's on their mind, what they're struggling with, what myth they believe in. It could be a a number of things. And then I go, oh, you need to do chapter four and be ready, have it highlighted and ready for the following class. So each class works on to the next class. And then we cover the topics. They highlight the sections. We discuss what they highlight, whether they disagree, whether they want to critique it, debate me, or it's something that they found really helpful. And then we have a discussion class. And that's how it's formulated. Saturdays, we go up a mountain. Sun- Although we did it today instead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then Sundays are open house where their family can come in. And contrary to every other rehab, we don't take their cell phone away. We don't take their laptops away. We don't treat them like babies. There's or none criminals. Of, or criminals. There's none of that. Our doors are open. They all have a single room, beautiful place. Yeah. So... It's just an incredibly conducive, quiet learning environment. They spend three to four weeks with us, and they go through that whole curriculum. By the time they leave us, the myths are undone. They know that they can be free, and they've usually chosen either moderation or abstinence. Well, and they can have as much contact with us as they want. We only have six people here at a time, and so we a lot of times people might choose to stay in contact with us by text or phone over the first few weeks or months that they're home and yep. they find that very, very helpful. The transition, um, yep. going home. Yep, and we're happy to do that for them. So working with them to understand their own thinking about addiction from this different perspective, yes. giving them the space to figure that out for themselves as they figure out what is going to fit for them. Yeah. For instance, I'll give you an example. When somebody goes home and they, let's say they pick to abstain and all of a sudden they have a whole heaping amount of time, which is a resource that was sucked up by getting high. And in some cases it was an all day venture, right? So before they left, we did a portion called life movements where they've listed out all these activities, different things, new goals, all these different things that they're going to do when they go home, because they now have an open resource called time, which is our most expensive and wonderful resource, right? And so when they go home, they say, okay, I'm trying this. I'm swinging the bat at this activity, this activity. This one isn't working too well, Mark. And they're texting me and I say, well, skip it, right? Chuck that one to the side, cross it off the list. Let's move on to item number seven. Let's kick some ass. Let's have some fun. And you would be amazed at how excited people get because they know they're free. They know they have the capacity to move on with their lives, and they know it's not a matter of strength or weakness. They know it's just a matter of choices to be made. And boy, people, when they get that concept that it's not a matter of strength, that it's a matter of choice. That they don't have to struggle. It doesn't have to be a daily struggle. Yeah, we get rid of that. It's not a struggle. 
It's a matter of really looking at your options and saying, what makes me the happiest without judgment? And when you take out the shame and all of that, and people are able to analyze the utility or futility of their use, they get it. And they just need somebody to sound that off of, you know? Okay. What about, I'd be curious too, about your guys' view on the impact of trauma on individuals who are struggling with addiction. Yeah, well, everybody has trauma. So what we have a chapter called Learned Connections, and that is that our culture has connected trauma, stress, depression, and anxiety to drug use. That was not even a commonly held belief even 20 to 50 years ago, that this is something that has been narrative that has been pushed by the psychiatric movement so and the treatment movement, because if you have stress, trauma, anxiety, depression. Which pretty much every heavy substance user which does. Which every human does. <laughs> right. Then you will always be in need of therapy because you're always at risk of getting high or drunk. So what we do is we separate life problems from this choice of getting high and drunk. We look at getting high and drunk as a choice no different than eating toast. But the problem is you got all this mythology. So it's, what you're asking is a complex process. First, we have to get rid of the mythology. Then we look at, okay, you're getting high for these personal reasons. One of them maybe because you have trauma. Right. And then we say, let's deal with the trauma. It has nothing to do with getting high. They are not inherently connected. Right. They're not causal. They may be a reason using reasoning as a reason to go get high. But let's talk about that. So we have a chapter called causes versus reasons. And when they start to realize that they have consciously connected their trauma to use and that it's not an inherent connection that is causal, suddenly they have control over both. Then we separate it with that knowledge and we deal with the trauma and we say separately. And so let me just make sure I understand. So in a way saying you have this trauma it may impact you or may impact your affective state, such as depression or anxiety or fear, whatever it is, which is an uncomfortable state. You turn to alcohol, drugs, whatever it is, compulsive behavior, whatever, if you want to call it that, you might not call it that, but to relieve those feelings and shift those feelings. Well, we say that's the belief, but yes. then we say, how is that working for you? Yeah. <laughs> has, has it helped you? Right. Some people say, yes, it has. And then we address that. Right. So, but has it actually been an effective tool? Right. But, but more importantly, the narrative is that the two are connected, that your trauma does cause your use. So I would say in that class, hey, so you use it as a reason. So we build that bridge first. And they say, yeah, I guess I do. I consciously, I do. I want to escape from the trauma. I say, okay, has it worked? And they usually will say, oh, not really. When they really mind for it, they still feel the pain of the trauma. In some cases, it's pretty wicked trauma. Okay. Right. I've gone yeah. through some really awful things in my life. So I understand it. And then it's, well, let's separate these. You don't have to get high if you have trauma. That's number one. Let's talk about the trauma. But let's also talk about whether it's effective to get high when you feel this way. And then we challenge the belief that it actually relieves trauma because it doesn't. It it's can't not even it, a little bit. It can't pharmacologically take away trauma because trauma is an object of the mind. It's not an object of the body. 
and drugs affect the body. They don't affect the mind. They can't change the content of your thoughts. Right. They can't change the trauma. Right. I mean, one thing I would say, though, where I might take a little bit of issue with that, and that's a lot of Bessel van der Kolk's research about how trauma impacts the nervous system. And I mean, that very much is in the body. And I mean, I understand the idea that, look, you're using your addiction to mask those feelings. I get that. But also, I do think trauma is in the body. No, we're saying the same things. Okay. We're just saying it doesn't compel you to use drugs or alcohol. The majority of people that suffer trauma don't drink a drug because of it. Yeah, no, I can totally agree with that. Like it comes down to a choice that we make to deal with whatever experience we don't know how to deal with. And this is an easy way to do it. If you believe... Easy, if that makes sense. Not necessarily easy. Not necessarily effective. Not necessarily easy. (laughs) But, you know, maybe it's the only way we know. We challenge the belief that it'll help them. If people believed they needed a cupcake every time they felt stressed, they'd eat a cupcake. You know what I mean? And clearly a cupcake doesn't help stress. So it's the same thing. There's this belief that alcohol and drugs somehow, and it's cultural, somehow relieve stress and relieve bad feelings. And so we just, all we do in the freedom model is we just let people know that it doesn't have the power to do that, that it's not. And we help them to see that personally. Like we want them to come to that conclusion that you're right. You know, when I was drunk at first, I felt better, but then I got pulled over by that cop. And all of a sudden my stress level went through the roof. And you know what I mean? Like, so it doesn't pharmacologically change the content of your thoughts. Yeah. So that's the real linchpin of this thing. So we challenge the benefit that it's an effective tool. So it does, it can't pharmacologically take away the trauma, the stress that you talk about that's in your body. All of that is a belief. Now, so what does a buzz do to get rid of trauma, even for the brief times that people believe it does, is your interpretation of a physical buzz is a temporary mental vacation that you have given yourself based on the belief right. that the buzz did it. So it's a misattribution. You have decided hey, I take a couple of Zannies, right? I drink I a bottle of wine. Vacation. I take my little vacation. I give myself permission. I feel a buzz. So you, the buzz, the physical sensation, because that's what drugs do, is a cue. And we know this from research. If you read the book, all the research is there. It's a physical cue for you to interpret it based on a narrative that you have been taught that it relieves stress, anxiety, <laughs> depression, all these things. So. What's important in there is that you made the decision at the sensation of a buzz, you gave yourself permission to let go for a little while. And so once they get that and they see the research and we've undone the belief of the powers of drugs, then we say, why don't you give yourself permission without getting fucked up? Right, right, right. (laughs) Seems you could go for a walk or go for a run. Or you could decide to look at the trauma differently. Yeah. And let it go, which is hard. It is. Sometimes scary and sometimes difficult, but it can be done because everybody has trauma. Yeah. Right. Well, I want to thank you guys for coming on to the podcast. If someone is out there listening, struggling, what would you want to tell them? Well, I would want to tell them that we've been there and that we can definitely, the Freedom Model can help. You can reach us directly at 888-424-2626. 
Um, you can, we have YouTube videos. We have a YouTube channel, The Freedom Model. Um, our website for the retreat is soberforever.net. Our website for the book and all of our services is thefreedommodel.org. And we have podcasts ourselves. Yep, the Addiction Salon podcast. Yep. yep. Cool. I think the thing I would like to say is that you can move on from this. Yes. I want people to know that this is not a chronic progressive psychosocial disease. It's bunk. And get a copy of the book if you don't believe me. I know it's hard for people. I spent literally the first 30 years of my life in the treatment system from the age of seven. I've been to therapists. I've been to thousands of AA meetings. I understand where you're at. I've had a gun in my mouth. I've been, I know what it's like to be at the end and have total hopelessness and severe trauma in my life. But none of that is a problem for me now because I became free by understanding what was actually happening. And it's important for people to know they can get on with their lives and move past this. Yes. Well, awesome. Thank you guys so much for sharing your message and definitely your message of hope and empowerment. So I just appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, Thank thanks you for having so us. much for having us. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it was an honor. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. Once again, you can find all the show notes at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 78. Don't forget about the opportunity to share your story. Just go to theaddictedmind.com and click on the side tab. And if it fits a fit for you, share your story and share your words of hope so other people can hear that as well. Also, if you're enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please rate and review us in iTunes and think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to facebook.com and type in the Addicted Mind podcast. We'll show up, click join and continue the conversation there as well. And if you are enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast and you think someone else would benefit from it, please share it with them. I totally appreciate it. All right, everybody, have a wonderful day and I'll talk to you on the next episode. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.